Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everybody, welcome back to the State of America podcast. As always, I am one of your hosts, David, and my good buddy, Ian, as always, is on the other line. Ian, are you enjoying your Labor Day weekend? I am, because my Labor Day weekend is extended for a week, because I I can't say that it was uh, the benefit of uh, foresight on this one, but I did take a week off next week just to uh, recharge the batteries and... Uh, Get a fresh head, so I'm looking forward to it. There's a lot of albums I got to catch up on, and and all that kind of thing. So, uh, how's your uh, Labor Day festivities going so far? Oh, it's it's not bad. I've I've been listening to a lot of music. You sent me um, the Pearl Jam self-titled album uh, on vinyl, the uh, Brendan O'Brien mix, and uh, really got me back on the Pearl Jam kick. That's a great re. Uh, I guess that's a remix. Yeah, a great remix of the album. Yeah, I mean, I love that album, and the second you told me that that was, like, top for you, I had to send that your way. So I'm glad you've been enjoying it. Yeah, it's one of, it's one of, it's probably my top, in my top three or four Pearl Jam albums. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. I think it was a good comeback album. I, Binaural and uh, Riot Act, I, were not, I was not a fan of. Yield's my favorite Pearl Jam album. Yield me and, too. Yield and Versus. Avocado, the Avocado album comes up there, I mean, it just seems more raw, like Worldwide Suicide and, and, and some songs like that. And then it's got what I think is their greatest ballad, Comeback. The closing track, Inside Job, is really, really good. Uh, just really, it, there's there's not many stinkers on it. No, it's a solid record. And probably their last fully solid record, like the, the ones after that that they put out, uh, you know, up to and including uh, their latest, have some great material on it. But there's also some things that, you know, you probably won't revisit all that much. Oh man, I would I would disagree with you on that. Gigaton, man, I think there's only like two two bad songs on there. I love that album. Um, oh yeah, I thought I think it's great. Don't get me wrong. All right, and Seven O'clock, and Never Destination, and Super Blood Wolfman are all just just great great tracks. Um, it's been a great year though for um, reissues. You know, we we've got the Goat's Head Soup one, which we talk about a little bit on, on our interview with Brett, and then. I'm really excited on you are the wildflowers reissue. Oh yeah. And then, uh, Wilco just, uh, announced they're going to do a summer teeth reissue, which is my favorite Wilco album. So they're releasing two concerts, one concerts on the LP and the other concerts on the CD. Sneaky, sneaky players. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so I'm really excited about that wildflowers one. I'm, I'm excited to hear these songs that we haven't really heard before. And then, you know, they're going to have live versions of the songs and like, I think alternate mixes, but if anything, just to have that album on a clean official vinyl. Yes, I mean absolutely, uh, absolutely fantastic to be able to do that. I, you know, and speaking of uh, things to have finally on a uh, clean vinyl release, of course, the uh, Lions reissue just came out with the first of the three Record Store Day drops installments, and uh, you know, I got my copy. I got your copy. I gave gave one away already. I potentially have some more on the way, so everybody should uh, stay tuned and see uh, see how we're going to get those out to some of you, hopefully. Yeah, I can't wait to get that um, in the mail. It seems like a lot of people got it. 
And um, speaking of record store day, I don't know if this was released at this record store day or what, but I'm see if, what you think of it, would think of it. So I bought the uh, Pearl Jam stream of one of their Seattle shows. Was, I think they're giving most of the money away to charity. And um, Brandy Carlisle, you familiar with her? Yes. So she comes out and sings one of her songs with Pearl Jam. Uh, Pearl Jam had covered it for like a tribute album or whatever. So apparently she was Record Store Day ambassador this year. So she, you know, she's from Seattle or she's from Washington. So she went in the studio and recorded "Black Hole Sun" and "Searching with My Good Eye Closed" with Soundgarden, and it's going to be released on Record Store Day. And I have not seen that anywhere. No kidding. I have to check the list and see when that is. I don't remember seeing that either. That would be a uh, cool one to have. I would. I didn't. I didn't even really know about it. But she's great, and that 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 sounds fantastic. There's some. There was some some great stuff uh released so far and looks like on the list some some potentially great stuff i mean obviously you know i got lions that's all i was really after you know like as long as i went home with that i felt Mm -hmm. like i was going home a winner uh the other one i was looking for was the uh first time on vinyl reissue of space hogs first album resident alien but i missed out on that and that thing is going for astronomical prices uh you know in the uh in the resell market which is a shame i think that kind of defeats the purpose of record store day i feel like a lot of the records as each one progresses a lot of the stuff ends up in the hands of the wrong people you know the people that really want these records don't necessarily get them which is why i've been trying to get my hands on a couple more of these lions and because i see a lot of people that said they didn't they weren't able to get it or this and that and i try to get it to people at least you know i'll pay the uh, a little bit extra money for it if it means it's getting to somebody that actually wanted it you know? right yeah and you see some bands eventually wind up releasing some of this record store day stuff you know a couple months later like Sunvolt did that a couple years ago with their uh, okima and the melody of riot album which i think i got it on like red vinyl and record store day that was the first year i had a uh, turntable and i went bonkers uh, <laughs> i even got like a miles davis album and i got like a live Wilco album, I got Akeem in the Melody. Right, that's when I like had to pull the old George Costanza and stop short on somebody to snag the Chris Robinson Brotherhood box set. Like <laughs> I literally, guess. I stopped short. But uh, yeah, so uh, record store day, a lot of fun. I appreciate you and your wife getting up at the crack of dawn and going to get that for me. Well, yeah, it's one per person, so uh, I had to uh, drag her into the mix. Actually, it's funny. In years past, I usually work Saturday, so she usually is my record store day ambassador. And goes and gets my stuff but this this year i happened to be off so we both went and luckily the place i went to had had quite a few copies of it which all went you know because i've been back to the store since and you know i'm friendly with one of the uh the managers of the place who's a big black crows guy and i said uh, any of those uh, still kicking around or anything you know because they they tend to get stuff in after the fact too so i said mm-hmm. is that that on the list of stuff that's coming back in and he said no that that didn't it wasn't even an option to them to get it back in well, hopefully that Crowology, it was supposed to come out this month, and it was already pushed back to this month. Hopefully, that's going to see the light of day at some point. Yeah, I mean, I put my pre-order in months ago, and it just keeps getting pushed back, which is fine as long as it shows up eventually, you know. Yeah, so I mean, after that, if I get Crowology, I think it's going to be just freaking roll on vinyl that I'll be missing. Which I even forgot they put that out on vinyl. That's how not paying attention i was at that time to to what was coming out where and that that's i i looked into it just to see like hey what's this going for it's a couple you hundred know? bucks 
Yeah, it's a little steep. I don't. I for some reason, and this may make me make me a bad fan or something like that. Like I can't justify that that expense for something that's that's normally priced at you know say fifty bucks or something. Like right. That, you know, like, like to to go pay one hundred and fifty for it. It's like I don't know. I just. I guess I just don't have that much disposable cash. I've come close to doing it on Crowology, which it's going to really drive down the price of those Crowology records once this comes out. See, you, you you tend to think that, but I looked into. I mean, maybe because it, it, it was far more limited, but you know those those original lions are still going for quite a pretty penny. But I mean, those were those were European only, I think. And well, see, I don't care about what pressing it is. I want the copy that sounds the best. I mean, if it's if it's pressed in the Philippines and it's the best. The best sounding audio. That's all I care about. Yeah, I mean, I think from all accounts so far, um, I think this is getting acceptance as a pretty decent pressing of Lions. You know. All right. So speaking of Lions, right before Lions came out, the Black Crows went on tour with Jimmy Page, and that's going to be our focus this week. Doing something a little bit different this time. We had two guests on to uh, talk about live at the Greek. Our first guest is Brett Hogan, and he did a uh, really good job on reviewing the first album. And then the great Steve Hagar makes his return for uh, album number two, and it's never a dull moment with Steve. No, it certainly isn't. And, uh, you know, it's kind of just, uh, you know, lighten the fuse and see which way the trajectory of the explosion goes with that. (laughs) So, uh, but uh, always great having Steve on. Love talking to him. Love hearing his insight on things. And, uh, you know, gotten to the point with with Steve that if you don't have the same standpoint as him, he's kind of cool with that now. He doesn't give you a hard time like years ago. Perhaps he might have, but uh, you know, he just has a little fun with everything, and I think he uh, just enjoys the overall appreciation of this music, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Like we've said before, Steve's a great guy. Don't let him scare you on the internet, but don't try to punch back because you will lose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I. I want to apologize for my lack of insight on the uh, disc number two. We recorded that last week, and I was sick and honestly was kind of out of it (laughs) toward the last half, and so you won't hear a whole lot from me, so that may make for a better pod. (laughs) I wasn't going to bring it up because I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about it, but yeah, kind of about like about 30 minutes into it, I, 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 you know, I'm I'm looking at David, and I could see something is wrong, but I'm, I'm just trying to to finish this out because you know you're also trying to uh you know corral mr hager so uh you know <laughs> yeah you kind of started feeling a little shaky towards the end there right yeah so it's the steve and ian show for, for the better part of that one but i made up for it uh, on our interview with brett i uh i got my two cents in and um kind of led the discussion so one of the things ian and i want to do before we do throw to those interviews is like i said we're talking about live at the greek what is one Black Crow song that you wish they would have played? It's it's a it's a tough uh, tough choice, um, and believe it or not, I, I probably shock a few people by saying this, but uh, I would have to go with uh, uh, Cypress Tree because it comes from an album Lions, obviously, that I feel is heavily influenced by the the, the Crows having played with Jimmy Page, so it kind of has somewhat of his vibe to it i would have liked to have heard that i realized that in the uh chronology of things it wouldn't have been possible but uh as you said fantasy so i can deal with that fantasy in any reality i choose (laughs) and it's our podcast that's right now what what would you go with man i'm about to like make 80 percent of our audience get upset with me i also 
have a song offline said I would like to hear them play with Jimmy Page and it's no use lying reason being the drums are recorded perfectly on this album and that is a heavy drum track and you could have Audley and Rich playing the the riff and having Jimmy Page play slide over the top of it yeah see I mean I think it I think it comes down to 0506 was exciting for me with the Black Crows because I got to hear Mark Ford's what he would do with By Your Side and Lions tracks. And I kind of have that same excitement towards, hey, what would Jimmy Page do with this? Because obviously his, his influence shows mm-hmm. on it, you know, so that's great. All right. On the flip side, my three songs that I would have liked to have heard them cover of Led Zeppelin are in this order. Tangerine with Rich on vocals, The Rover, and Down by the Seaside. Those are some nice picks. Definitely The Rover. And uh, the rover almost made my list as well. I mean, that's one of my favorite Zeppelin tunes. I feel like um, Tangerine from a vocal range is Ryan Rich's wheel zone. Yeah, and that was also another one I, I considered. And uh, I picked a different track from the same album for the similar reasons. So, yeah, I definitely get that. Nice picks. So what are your three? My three were uh, Good Times, Bad Times mm-hmm. from the first record. I, I thought Chris would really handle that na- nicely. And then from Led Zeppelin 3, I picked That's the Way. Mm -hmm. I thought Chris would really that was I pushed off Tangerine for That's the Way because those are my two favorite tracks from that album and and then originally I was going to say Hot's On for Nowhere but they they played that on the tour a few times I haven't heard it but I saw it I checked you know the the set list stats on set list FM just to be sure I wasn't out of my mind so then I went with uh, the Rain song I really would like to again it's mostly just to hear what Chris would do with these things and the Rain song I'd like to hear Rich's guitar playing on it as well. It's one of my favorite Zeppelin tunes in, in, ter- in the mellow category. And it's such like a great, such a great build. Oh yeah, absolutely. One of the all-time great builds. All right, rank the songs on Live at the Great top five in no order. Well, I did this. I kind of just went through the, the track listing, but these these are my top five: uh, Custard Pie, mm-hmm. What Is and What Should Never Be, mm-hmm. Heartbreaker, mm-hmm. Out on the Tiles, mm-hmm. and Your Time Is Going to Come. Do we match up in any way? Sometimes no. we do, sometimes we, we don't. We have one. I go, your time is going to come, in my time of dying, 10 years gone, hey, hey, what can I do, and oh well. Nice. See, those are great picks, too. See, the, the trouble with doing this with an album like this is, like, everything else is a close second, you know, because there's such great stuff on this. Well, I feel like oh well was just basically written for Rich to play. Yeah, I mean, uh, he definitely does a good job with that, and that's, uh, I kind of, I guess I stuck more to the Zeppelin stuff, but yeah, I mean, that's that they do a fantastic version of it, as we will later discuss. Or y'all will discuss. Yes, well, yeah, it's me and Steve will discuss, and you will quietly pass out in the background. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I got my finger on the send after pressing 911, uh, you know, it's ready. Oh. I just have to explain that to somebody. Yes, I'm in New York, but he's not. <laughs> yeah. I'll help him. <laughs> yes. Can you patch me through? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, uh, I do apologize for my lack of participation on the second disc, but uh, I'm, like I said, I'm more than make up for it with uh, disc one. Hey, uh, I do want to tell everybody to follow us on Twitter at uh, State of America and like our Facebook page and our Instagram page. And come on, guys, we're getting close to having a comma for our number of followers on Twitter. I, we'd really appreciate it. We could hit a thousand on that. And then uh, another thing that we could use your help with leaving us reviews on Apple podcast. Uh, I think we're up to 145. So um, we'd like to hit 200 on that fairly soon if we could. And uh, if you follow us on Twitter, uh, you can ask everybody. Uh, I get generous and um, 
let's see, this past Friday night, I passed out some goodies to people in the inbox. So no limit on that. So follow us on Twitter. And uh, Ian is known to do a giveaway or two on Facebook as well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I do also want to say that uh, the near future in terms of episodes is going to be quite exciting. We've got some really nice stuff coming up and uh, stuff I'm sure you're all going to enjoy. Some stuff that's already been recorded, some stuff that we uh, uh, will potentially be recording very soon. And I won't be giving anything away on that. But, uh, uh, you know, we we definitely appreciate you guys sticking with us over all this time and hope you've been enjoying. And uh, there's some great things to come. Yeah, we've got one. Uh, we haven't confirmed the date yet, and we're not going to tell anybody who it is, and it's just going to show up in your uh, podcast feed. Yeah, but that's it's definitely going to be a great one and something that we are both very much looking forward to. So uh, stay tuned for that, and stay tuned for some other great episodes, too, including some uh, very fantastic bonus episodes that we've uh, had in the can, and we just got to get together and get them out. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Here's Brett Hogan, followed by the great Hagar. everybody a couple of months ago um i got a friend request on facebook from a gentleman and he was talking about how much he liked the state of amorca and he was listening to uh, my other podcast digital kill the radio star as well looked on his contacts and we had quite a few people uh in common turns out his brother-in-law was a uh, fraternity pledge brother of mine back ages ago and so uh found out he's a diehard black crows fan he and i've been texting each other back and forth for the last month or so about music and decided uh he would probably be a good one to have on to talk about the uh album number one from um the live at the greek album with jimmy page so welcome to the podcast brett hogan thank you very much how's it going brett going great enjoying this uh labor day weekend and uh listening to some good music i hear you got a couple of days off from work and just kind of hanging out you can't beat that this past week was a big vinyl week for me i've been listening to i got that um that new Goat's Head Suit re- reissue, and uh, yes, it may be the greatest reissue I've ever listened to, as far as sound. And uh, friend of the podcast, Stephen Hyden, just wrote a long essay about it. Uh, are you a big Stones fan? Huge. Uh, that was the Rolling Stones were the first rock band. Um, my dad introduced me to all this types of all the rock music. Um, I started out. Um, listening to the first rock album I really heard and really caught my attention was the first Van Halen album. My dad played it start to finish for about three years. And, um, that was in the early eighties, 81, mm-hmm. uh, 82. And then, um, the Rolling Stones, we'll get into that. Um, that was the second band that I kind of discovered. They weren't one of my favorite bands because they were a little more sophisticated than your, than what was going on in the 80s, right? right. Um, so I picked up on a lot of the 80s music. But the Rolling Stones were kind of the constant. That was one of my dad's favorite bands. And so it just eventually rubbed off on me to where um, in high school, uh, I went to the, I saw three shows on the Voodoo Lounge Tour. And then got in college in the mid-90s, and every time they'd come within 100 miles, I'd, I'd go see them. So, yeah, I've, I've definitely got a Stones history behind me. So. 
That's great, man. I mean, uh, we got things in common on two counts there. I don't think I've stopped playing the first Van Halen record since I first started. It's hard to it. stop. <laughs> and uh, yeah, my dad was uh, very big into the Stones and, and got me into them as well. And Goat's Head Soup is fantastic. It's probably, arguably, their last great complete record as far as I'm concerned. I'll throw some girls in there. Uh, yeah, Brett, you talking about Van Halen and the Stones like that, you're going to make... Uh... Ian's heart go pitter-patter. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Van Halen fan from start to finish. I was a Sammy Hagar fan too, and I, I picked up on that. And um, that, was the, that was the first band I really liked. But uh, Led Zeppelin came in. When I heard The Ocean for the first time, I was hooked on Zeppelin. I went down and asked my dad, I said, have you heard this? He was like, yeah, yes, son. I saw Led Zeppelin in 1973 at the Mid-South Coliseum. I was like, wow. <laughs> um, so... Led Zeppelin, you know, all the the British invasion was big. The Who, Zeppelin, the Beatles. I'm I'm more of a Stones guy than a Beatles guy. It just there's there's something about the Stones. I think it's the there's so many types of you, know, you can hear funk, soul, rock, everything in one song, and it blends perfectly. And they're the only band that can, in my opinion, that can do that. So well, I like to tell people that all Exile on Main Street is is a love letter to American music. It is because it's just got a little bit of uh, everything on there. All right, so this week what we're going to talk about is the uh, Live at the Greek album with Jimmy Page and just really, one of the, in my opinion, one of the great live albums of all time. Uh, I never get tired of listening to it. They just repressed it this year on a, uh, it's an audiophile version, 180-gram uh, vinyl that uh, really, really sounds really good. It's an upgrade from the original one. Ian, you and I haven't talked about Led Zeppelin a lot. We know Brett is a Zeppelin fan. What are your thoughts real quick on, on Zeppelin? I really love a lot of Led Zeppelin stuff. But I, I think, and through conversing with other people, especially more recently, I think I, I appreciate things that the uh, you know the dyed-in-the-wool Led Zeppelin fan maybe doesn't like as much. Like, my favorite record is Led Zeppelin 3. And... Um, I'm also a big fan of In Through the Outdoor, which apparently can get you killed in some circles. So uh, I tend to keep that to myself. But I, it's I, the by I your really side like... of uh, the Zeppelin catalog. Yeah, it's it's the John Paul Jones album. Yes, exactly. But I, I I thought there was some some great material. I still think there is, and you know I don't. There seems to be a lot of real distaste for it. But I I I always enjoyed it. I like a, a great deal of of their body of work. I consider myself a pretty big Led Zeppelin fan. I don't. What about you, David? Um. Yeah, I like them. Um, Physical Graffiti is my favorite album of theirs. I like Led Zeppelin Three. I like a lot of their more mellow stuff, honestly. Stuff like Tangerine and Down yeah. by the Seaside and uh, the Rain Song, stuff like that. I get. I mean, my dad bought me Led Zeppelin Four when I was really young, and then when I was either in college or right before I went to college, um, that four album box set came out that had like Traveling Riverside Blues and Hey Hey What Can I Do on it and uh i got really into that and then i guess later on i really got into you know some of the deeper stuff but as far as like the jimmy page involvement you know it's kind of some people would say one of the last great swings of the black crows was that live album they had done by your side and had returned really to kind of their shaker moneymaker era roots and obviously it's one of the most probably the most divisive album in the in the catalog and they, um, you know, they had played with Plant and Page at different times in their career, and mm-hmm. the offer came to do, I think it was like one show maybe or something like that with Jimmy Page, and obviously 
they hit it off. You can read in Gorman's book, you know, how well they all hit it off. And uh, so they, you know, they do it. Uh, they do these shows at the Greek and they have a, this big tour planned and it all falls apart. And depending on who you talk to, there's different versions of why that happened. But when this, this was right about the time I became a diehard, I went from a casual fan to a diehard fan. And so when I heard they were going to do this, I was like, this, this can't go wrong. I didn't feel the same way. Um, sometimes when people blend musical worlds, it doesn't, you think on paper it's going to work out. And I wasn't sure with the, where the crows were in their career. Now they did, you're right by your side. It just been completed and they just toured. So they were kind of in that mode, but I didn't know how well it was going to go. And then, um, at that time I was do I was on a lot of message boards. I was on a lot of Led Zeppelin message boards. There's a guy, there's a Led Zeppelin, um, archivist, um, that was running a message board at the time. And, um, those videos from the Roseland ballroom, the first three shows at Roseland ballroom, the show in Boston, and then the show, the two shows in LA, they were videos were making their way to these message boards in 1999. And uh, so I was watching some of the videos just a few days after uh, they had played the shows. So I was blown away. Um, I knew the Crows could could do it. I just didn't, you just don't know how well it's gonna sound, right? Um, Chris had gone in so many different musical directions over the years. Um, Led Zeppelin was probably off his radar in 1999, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, especially about you know, on paper, things can look good and they don't necessarily pan out. And I, I mean, obviously, in the case of Jimmy Page and the Black Crows, it did. But I mean, you know, if you think about like the version of Black Sabbath where uh, Ian Gillian was the singer, like on paper, that sounds like a good idea, but it really didn't pan out. And sure, you know, and some people would even say, you know, Gary Sharon and Van Halen and things like that. And I mean, but I couldn't think of a better band to back up Jimmy Page on some of those songs just by the sheer heaviness of of rich's guitar playing like the two of them joined together that's some that's some weight right there that's some rock weight you know yes it is that was uh the first time that the led zeppelin songs the ones that they had picked and played on this album this is the first time that all the guitar parts were played live right um jimmy page being a session player would record layers in his songs and then it was cool to listen to like the song remains the same listen to him improvise this live but this is the first time they were played I think that's one of the reasons, you know, they have a bad reputation as a not a very good live band. And I think it was because if you watch some of those videos from the 70s, Paige is trying to incorporate all three parts in various ways at the same time. And it mm-hmm. just comes off disjointed and, and sloppy. And then, of course, you know, they break up and then they have that just disastrous live aid appearance i mean could not have gone worse i mean jimmy page looked like he was about to die he was sweating so much and he was like just absolutely awful and then you know he did the outrider album and then there's really there was really nothing from him and until we got the page plant tour which other than that the man was just sitting at home you know living off his royalties pretty much i saw page and plant in 95 uh, at the Pyramid in Memphis. It was like the fifth show. And it was fun to see them. It was not, it, it was good. Uh, it wasn't as good as the walking into Clarksdale. I saw that three times. And they were more of a, more of a, they weren't a four piece. They had a key- keyboard player. They were a five piece band at that time. But that was more like the Led Zeppelin stuff that I, that I remember and grew up on. But they, they did, they, they, they still reworked a few things, 
in, in 98 on that tour, but they were getting more back to their, to their roots, I guess. And then I think Robert Plant pulled the plug after that. So yeah. Ian, what was your opinion on walking into Clarksdale? I enjoyed the record. It's not one I often go back to, but I have no problems with it, but, um, and they definitely were, I think, sharper sounding live than perhaps some of the, uh, the Zeppelin shows I've heard, but I mean th- that's the, just the trouble is like you know, you have to be able to as a band you have to be able to recreate live what you do in the studio and and Jimmy Page was a big studio guy and he almost hurt himself that way because he would lay down all these multi layered parts that you couldn't possibly pull off by yourself in in concert. I I agree, uh, but he picked the greatest backing band you could possibly have. Mm. Um, yes, he did. There are moments on this album, I think the Crows are at the height of their powers, that I would put up there. There's a couple of songs on this that I would put up against any live any live songs they did with Mark Ford. And what sticks out to me is, you know, we talk about the Mark Ford era, and we talk about, you know, we've talked about the greatest Mark Ford solos and, you know, uh, classic rich riffs. This is as much Steve Gorman and Ed Harsh's album as anybody's. Steve Gorman plays his heart out. And if you read in the book, you know, this was so important to him. And then he's having to copy these parts, you know, John Bonham parts. And then he's getting all these great compliments from Jimmy Page about, you know, how well he's playing. And uh, if you go back and listen to it, he is, especially on, on some of the songs that we're going to talk about on this one, I mean, he's, he just takes over. And uh, I actually text him some questions uh, about the this album and playing on it that... I'll bring up when we get to specific songs to get his insight on it. But um, all right, so let's start it off here. We're going with disc one. We pull up the track listing here. We have Celebration Day. What are your thoughts on that? This song is a warm-up song for me on this album. Uh, in a lot of rock shows, the first song is always kind of the warm-up song. Mm-hmm. And to me, this was their warm-up song. It's not It's not one of my favorite Zeppelin songs, but they did a good job with it. It just didn't blow me away at all, uh, the first song. Now, Custard Pie and on down the line, it gets better. It, it seems to get better as it goes on, but this was a warm-up song for me. Yeah, I'd have to uh, agree with that sentiment. It, uh, it never was one of my... Uh, my favorite uh, Zeppelin tunes either, but you know, in, in going through the Zeppelin songs, it, it was one that I was interested to hear Chris's take on it, you know, at the time. And now, you know, just thinking about songs they didn't perform, like what, what would Chris have sounded like on that? And this was one of the ones I was interested to hear. So I'm glad they played it, but uh, no, not the, uh, not the type odd, odd choice for the opener. I'll tell you. 
See, I don't think it's an odd choice at all. It's very, very up-tempo. Just the term Celebration Day. You know, it's actually about them going to New York for the first time. And this is off Led Zeppelin 3, isn't it? Yes, always, it is. I always get confused in that because I always think of Led Zeppelin 3 as being the kind of mellow, laid-back you know, album that they put out. And then this one's just wide open. I, I, I can see why they picked it, especially coming off the By Your Side type sound they were going with. This fit, fit more with it. I think Chris does a good job on, on, on the vocals of it. Is it my favorite Zeppelin song? No. Is it in my top 20 Zeppelin? No. I, I don't have a problem with them including it. All right, track number two, Custard Pie. This is one of Jimmy Page's best riffs. I love this song. I'm so glad it was on here. I believe they did this once or twice on the uh, the late night shows and things like that. Uh, and uh, it's a good way to lure people into you know purchasing the record or seeing them on that tour. Uh, just a great song, and I love their take on it. It's 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 a perfect version of it as far as I'm concerned. This album is almost like the Crows do physical graffiti on the first disc. <laughs> yeah. Um, this song, this song pops to me. It's got it. It plays to all Chris's strengths. The the vocals, uh, he can pull that off at this stage of his life. Uh, also, uh, you know, he uh, over the over the '90s, he had gotten really good on the harmonica, and he was he was killing it on harmonica on this album. And this song is is no exception. Yeah, a song with a, a just a killer riff uh kind of odd time signature on it yeah it's it's a great choice and and i agree with you like they really kind of favor the physical graffiti era zeppelin um especially on this first side and one of the things that i appreciate about this album is they weren't choosing stairway to heaven they weren't playing rock and roll they weren't playing i don't think they would have pulled that i don't think they would have even tried tried to attempt that (laughs) no you know so i love it that they were hitting these deep cuts and i would think also that Jimmy was like, hey, these are songs that we didn't necessarily even ever play or played very rarely, you know, and I want to play them. And plus, he was probably, this is one of those songs he's probably excited to be able to play with other guitars. And, you know, he can he can really shine and not have to worry about trying to incorporate all three of those, all of those parts because he had, you know, two more than capable people playing behind him. And I'm sure that freed him up. And I'm sure that made it more fun for him to play since he didn't have to worry about, you know, all these different layers. So that brings us to song number three, Sick Again.
another great Zeppelin tune, but um, do you guys have any idea what this song is about? I do not. I don't actually know. Did a little research on it. It's about underage groupies in Los Angeles. Oh, boy. <laughs> not a song that they could get away with uh, putting out today. Man, I love the opening riff on this. I think it just sets the tone for it. This has Black Crows written all over it. Absolutely has it written all over it. Brett, what are your thoughts? I would agree. Uh, Sick Again, it plays to all the Crows' strengths. Rich does really, I mean, he really kills it on this song. And again, Steve Gorman is so locked in on the drums. They had him mic'd perfectly for this album. Uh, you, you can hear that distinctive John Bonham snare drum, the whole the whole album. And this this song... I thought Rich really shined on Sick Again. That's a, that's a rich riff written all over it. It is. Yes, it is. This is a, a Zeppelin tune that I, I guess never really resonated with me when I listened to it. And it wasn't until hearing it here that I realized what a great tune it was. And it's because of you know Rich's playing on it. And, and you're absolutely right, too, about the way they record Steve's drums. I mean, say what you will about Kevin Shirley. The guy knows how to record drums. I mean, uh, he does. For any anything you can say negative about by your side the one positive thing you can say about it is that those drums are recorded with some real rock bombast to them and and that translates into the way they were recorded on this album too and it really made me an appreciator of this song in particular hearing it with this band doing it well if you're going to do led zeppelin music the drums need to be, need to sound right they yeah. do the physical graffiti album if, if you started out listening to zeppelin as a kid like i did the first album okay yeah, you, you get introduced to Led Zeppelin through the first album, The Good Times, Bad Times. Some of the songs on there are great. But by the time you, you – if you've been listening to Zeppelin since you were eight or nine years old, by the time you're 13, you've been through the first four albums. And if, 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 you, can, if you can graduate from the fourth album to Physical Graffiti, it's like a whole different world. It's, it's a breath of fresh air for people who have heard too many of the first four albums. Right. It's got a, it's got a little bit of everything on there. It does. That's, that's what I, that's what I, I like about it. All right, Brett. Track number four is what is and what should never be.
thought this was the perfect selection uh, for this album. It features Chris's voice. Uh, a lot of the Black Crow songs are like this. They're, they'll go low tempo. Chris is singing in a lower in a lower range, and then they kick up, and then Chris wails. And this was this was the first song I actually heard on this album. They were playing it on the radio here in Memphis, and it was it was actually a single. And uh, I I knew they were doing this, but I did it. It, it sounded. It, at first, it took me. It, it kind of caught me off guard when I heard it on the radio without any announcement or anything. And it took me a few minutes to figure out who it was, because it sounded. It didn't really sound like the Black Crows. It didn't sound like Led Zeppelin. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny you took the words right out of my mouth, Brett. That's exactly. This is my introduction to the Jimmy Page and the Black Crows thing. This was on the radio. I think this was the first thing they released, and uh, I mean, they played it a lot on the rock stations uh, in this area. I thought that this was an, an absolutely killer version of this this is one of my favorite led zeppelin tunes it's actually one of the few songs i can think of that not only starts with just a bare vocal but it's 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 a vocal that's so identifiable like it is the second you hear that opening line you know if i say to you tomorrow you know what it is and you get excited over it. it's like hearing a great riff or something at the beginning of a song it's great one of the things i think i like about it with this live version is when they're playing the kind of more mellow riff Obviously, that's probably Rich doing that, but then Paige is able to do the slide on top of it. Yes. And he would have not been able to do that in the Zeppelin days. So in a lot of ways, this this probably sounds a whole lot better live than it did back in the 70s. I love this song. I love it with Led Zeppelin. Paige and Plant played it several times. Uh, and then the Crows, you know, they of course, they did it justice. Um, but no, this was a, this, this was a good first, first track to put out, I think. Yeah. A, a track that has so much like breathing room during the verses you would think might get overpowered in a band that now has three guitar players but it still has that airy quality about it they really capture the the original essence of the song really nicely i i, I can't say enough good things about this particular track all right ian woke up this morning the bb king song You know, it's a it's a great blues cover, and who better to play blues covers with than Jimmy Page? Really, I mean, he's a big appreciator of that early blues, you know, and uh, he kind of uh, met up with the right guys to do those kind of covers. I, I I like this song, and I like this version of it. I think it's great, especially in a live setting. I would agree, BB uh, King. It's a great selection. Um, one thing I think it does uh, for this album is that uh, a lot of these songs, Chris is screaming over the top of three guitar players. This song is a little more, um, it's a blues song, so it's not, it's not as, it's not played as loud. And you, you get to hear Chris sing a little differently than some of the, some of the other songs on the album. Custard Pie and Sick Again and some of these other songs are just, I mean, you wail on these songs if you're singing them. So this gives Chris a little bit of a break and they could have probably picked a hundred BB King songs to put on this album. Uh, but this is a good one. 
this is my favorite of all the blues covers that's on this record. And one of the reasons I like it is the first solo is Jimmy Page takes the first solo. And I actually think it's his best solo on the album. The second solo, I believe, is Rich. And then at the very end, Ed gets a chance to really shine on the uh, on the piano. And I'm, you know, Ed grew up playing in all those blues and soul bands. I'm sure for a person like him to be able to have this and be able to stretch it out a little bit and show what he can do on this, it was just really right up his alley. And then that brings us to Shapes of Things, the Yardbirds classic. kind of so-so on this one i understand why they played it i mean jimmy was in the yardbirds i don't know if he was in the yardbirds when they recorded this but uh i mentioned earlier at the beginning that i reached out to steve i asked him what was the most difficult song to play and he said i'll read it to you said the most difficult was shapes of things only because everyone leaned in so much it was impossible to pull the tempo back i started pushing just to try to control it with mixed results this this does have like an odd time signature and now that he said that to me I can understand why this would probably be hard for him, not hard, but difficult for him to um, control the tempo on because it is it is different. What are your thoughts on it, Brett? I, lo- I love the Yardbirds. Jimmy, to my knowledge, Jimmy Page did not play on this song. This was Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck. Okay. I just find it odd that he wouldn't have picked a Yardbird song that he played on. You, if you Google this song, it pulls up like 20 artists pull up, so... Yardbirds are first because it's their song, but you do you, you see a lot of different a lot of different people that play a lot of different types of music playing this song. I mean, even uh, Jeff Beck kind of double dipped on this song because not only did he do it in the Yardbirds, but he did it on the on the Truth record with the Jeff Beck group, you know, with Rod Stewart singing, and, and that's the version I always knew. And actually, when I heard it, I said, "Oh, it's that Jeff Beck song." I didn't even occur to me it was originally by the Yardbirds, but uh, I, I always liked this song. You know, you saying. Steve Gorman's thoughts on this, David, uh, that really makes a lot of sense to me. It's probably one of those songs that, like, it either worked that night or it didn't, you know, whenever it appeared in the set list. And I'm sure there's, you know, if you did some research, there's probably a couple of uh, takes where the wheels fell off, maybe. I'd have to look into that. But definitely a very ambitious cover, and uh, I'm glad it's on there. I wonder if, you know, him including them playing this and them doing Oh Well was kind of a nod to his British contemporaries. I would, I would tend to think so. I mean, he tries to... He's always given a nod to that that period of time that he, you know he was ultimately involved in as well. Right. All right. So that was a that was so so for me. I could live with it or or do without it. Brings us to sloppy drum. <laughs> Tonight I'll be sloppy drum. 
If I had to guess, I would say that Jimmy Page wanted to play this song. Probably three or four years before Live at the Greek was put out, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page played several songs on a Jimmy Rogers tribute album. They did not play this one, but they played a couple of others. And so I've heard some Jimmy Rogers in my day. I've heard most of the Jimmy Rogers I've heard, I'll be honest, is off of that tribute album. But I would say this is a song that Jimmy Page probably wanted to play. Is that that uh, Jimmy Rogers All-Stars record? And yes. And then he came out like yeah. 98, 99? Yeah, a couple of songs on it. That's a fantastic tribute. I'm like, uh, as, as Mick Jagger's all over that, Stephen Stills is. is on there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's a great album. Ian, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, that'd be helpful, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I like this too, and I, I believe the Black Crows have covered it, you know, on their own. And um, the only issue I take with it here is it's kind of the third in a line of three blues type covers and uh, it almost is like one too many for me because that's one spot that they there could have been another zeppelin tune in there which is really the overall picture you're looking for is is to hear their take on some of these zeppelin tunes so it's almost it almost detracts from that a little bit but there's nothing wrong with the with the song at all we should also say that i'm sure most people know this but there aren't any black crow songs on this because of some contract issues I know they would play Remedy, Wiser Time, No Speak, No Slave, I think maybe Horsehead. That's a shame that that didn't get released in some capacity because Jimmy Page on Horsehead, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, to me, listening to Sloppy Drunk, this this totally sums up Jimmy Page's playing to me. <laughs> he is the tightest, loosest guitar player I've ever heard. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way of putting um, it. Some people say sloppy. I'm going to say tight, but loose. But. <laughs> What's funny to me, you listen to one of these guitar virtuosos, I'm not going to name any names, but somebody who's been really, who's been trained on guitar and, and plays his own music perfect. When they go to play a Led Zeppelin song, they sound, it doesn't sound anything like Jimmy Page. He's the only player in the world that sounds like he does. I agree. No, you're absolutely right. And that he's kind of like, you know, fast and loose with his own material, which is kind of great. But I, I always like that. There's a, there's a quality about that. And a lot of the, uh, the legendary guys like you know when you listen to neil young sometimes vocally it sounds like the wheels are going to come off but it never does and it <laughs> right. sounds like that you know and that's how jimmy's playing is to me a lot of the times it's like you think it's going to all fall apart but he really has it together it's just right. a quality of his style really that's like if you took john petrucci and told him to play a zeppelin yes. song he wouldn't sound good doing it no, no, it would sound too. It would sound too together and too too. It would just. It wouldn't be the same. And a great example of that. Everybody and their brother live has covered the song "Rock and Roll," and like you look at some of these when it's these you know virtuoso Steve I, Joe Satriani, these guys, it just doesn't sound right. You know. I just pictured. I just pictured poor John Petrucci at home listening to this, going, "Oh," <laughs> and he's such a nice guy. He, hey, he is. if he wants to come on and 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 get back at us he's more than welcome to yes <laughs> all right so fellas from here on out we're cooking with gasoline 10 years gone
This is one of Zeppelin's epics. I mean, this is an unbelievable tune. I'm glad it's it's here. This is a song again, like I'd mentioned earlier, that I really wanted to hear Chris's take on it, and I I really like his his vocal approach to this one, and I, I think it's a home run, and it's uh it's definitely good near towards the end of this first sort of set, as you will. I love it. I don't know. What do you think, Brett? I love this song, and when I talked about graduating from the first four albums to – actually, I think Houses of the Holy was between the first what? four albums and Physical Graffiti, which that's a great album too. But when I talk about graduating, this is one of those songs when I was in high school that once I discovered Physical Graffiti, I've never heard Led Zeppelin play like that before. To me, it was a great selection. The Crows, uh, it's kind of like what is and what should never be, uh, plays to a lot of Chris's strengths. Chris writes a lot of songs like 10 Years Gone for the Crows. So it plays to their strengths, and they did a hell of a job on it. Interesting enough, I was doing some reading on this, and originally this was going to be an instrumental track. Is that right? uh, Yeah, and I'm glad that that did not happen. This may be the song that benefits the most from having three guitar players on the album. There's so many parts to this, so many layers. Audley and, and Rich fill in tastefully. I asked Steve what was his favorite song to play, and he said it was 10 Years Gone. He said that's his favorite Zeppelin song. You know, this is another one that, I mean, it got played some in the 70s. I don't think it necessarily got played a lot, and it was never going to sound like this live in the 70s, not with Zeppelin. Well, by the time this by the time this came out in 75, you got to think, a lot of life started to happen to Led Zeppelin. They were the biggest band in the world. Uh, lots of drug issues at that time. They weren't touring as much in the mid-70s as, as they had been. They were a machine for about, you know, five to mm-hmm. five to six years. Uh, the albums were coming out left and right. So I think some of these songs like Ten Years Gone and then the next song, In My Time of Dying, they didn't get played a lot because Zeppelin wasn't out, out there playing, especially in the United States, like they once were. That's a good point. All right, the next song is In My Time of Dying.
This is epic in every sense. This is the song that I will put up against any other song they've ever done live in their history as at least being deserving mention. Steve Gorman takes over this song. and Yes, he does. Especially at the end. I don't, I don't know how they didn't have to replace the drum heads when they got through with this song or how he didn't break them. This is another one that just benefited so much from having three guitar players and you have this that really taste, tasteful slide playing of Jimmy Page and then that riff kicks in with Rich playing it and then you have all those tempo changes and at the end when it really speeds up, Gorman's just wearing it out. This is one of those songs I think nobody truly really knows necessarily who wrote it. It's an old spiritual slash blues song. Uh, if you look it up, it says traditional, but arranged by Bonham, Jones, Page, and Plant. This is my favorite song on this album. It's a top two or three cover song for me that they've ever done, and they captured lightning in a bottle on this recording uh, of this one. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. And you're absolutely right. It does benefit from having the three guitar players. It's almost like a lot of songs on this entire project are like the culmination of everything that the Black Crows have done. Like, for example... If Steve didn't have to hit the drum so hard to get over the top of Rich's, you know, volume, you know, all those years on tour, he wouldn't have that same hit that you need to play these bottom tunes. And you know what I mean? It's just like all these things kind of came together for this. And, and this is a uh, a real prime example of it. Great tune. Great tune. Another, like I said about the that about 10 years gone, another kind of epic sounding tune. What about you, Brett? I agree with you guys on Gorman. The whole He does a great job on the whole album. Chris also shines on this song with a lot of the start and stop um, he's able to sing in a lower range. And then, and then, like I said, well, uh, during those parts. And I think that plays to Chris's strengths. Chris does a lot of that with the black crows and Jimmy page with the slide. I mean, you just, uh, he's not able to concentrate on this if he was in Led Zeppelin doing this. So it's, and, and it shows. He's such a, an interesting slide player, Jimmy page too, because he doesn't play slide like, you know, the, the traditional type of slide mm-hmm. that you hear, he kind of just incorporates the slide into his style it's very cool very cool he can he can make a slide sound epic like like he because he doesn't play it like a traditional bluesman and like you were saying brett about chris's voice a lot of people think it was 2005 before chris chris's voice really recovered from this tour yes i've heard people say that he's never been the same since it's ultimately (laughs) uh it's ultimately the downside to, to this project was that it, I, I do think it put the hurt on his voice a bit. And which probably honestly tells you a lot of why Robert Plant doesn't want to do a tour. Oh, yeah. I thought Plant did a great job on that Celebration Day uh, reunion when they had Jason Bottom. I think mm-hmm. they rehearsed for six weeks for one show. Right. Talking about pressure. Um, right. <laughs> but Plant has such a uh, – he's got such a range. Even as an older older singer, I've seen him – I saw him like three or four years ago. And he, he's not the singer he was in Zeppelin, but he picks his spots and he can get it done. But I, I do agree, doing a Led Zeppelin tour at 70 years old is probably not a top priority for him, just just vocal-wise, I would think. And the funny thing about Robert Plant is like his more more recent vocal style I, I really like. like A lot of his early solo stuff I, didn't, I couldn't really get into, but the, the things he's done, starting with the, the album... Um, that has like Walk Me Out in the Morning Dew on it and things like that. I forget the name of the record. But Dreamland. Dreamland, thank you. Like starting with that and kind of moving forward, like all his solo stuff after that is, is really good. Uh, like the stuff he did with the Band of Joy and stuff. So, I mean, he really, to me, coming to his own again, like as a, as a, in his later years. Well, he knows what lane to stay in now. He, he isn't, does. He isn't trying to be 
Robert Plant of old. I mean, and I don't think he, I don't think he could be. All right, so Brett, we're going to close out the first set or first CD with your time is going to come. show the intro um i the first time i heard this was on was on i think it was conan o'brien maybe yep. and by the way the black crows are probably the best band that has played on late night tv as far as getting their sound and everything correct this was a great song for the crows to play it kind of fits right into their wheelhouse as far as vocally and and, and guitar wise it's it's right up their alley yeah this uh this track definitely is like you said brett the uh the ed harsh show and it's uh it's a nice tribute to his work to have on on record it was it's great the, the funny thing about this this song is i didn't know of it until much later and i listened to uh zeppelin you know, when i was very young and i guess i kind of always passed it by to me it, i think the reason might be to me is like this is the most non-led zeppelin song to me like it it doesn't fit into that bombastic kind of it's almost like a, a little bit different of a style to it but it's such a great song and it's a really perfect way to close out the first uh, part of this uh, this release. I wish the Crows would have played more off of Led Zeppelin One. Yes, songs like Good Times, Bad Times, right up their alley. You can't play them all though, so I mean I get it. And they were, you know, I'm, I'm sure Jimmy Page was directing the set list. But uh, this is your time is going to come. Is um, you know, like I said, it just plays to the Crows' strengths. I wonder if this was one that Jimmy decided to add to the set list after a couple of rehearsals of hearing Ed play. And I, and I always thought it showed great respect to Ed that they played this on network TV because very few times on a network show, A, are they going to let you play a long song. B, they're sure not going to have one where there's an organ, a minute-long organ solo to start the song and no singing and no other instrumentation going on. To me, one of my favorite moments ever is when that kicks in from that organ intro. That is just, I don't know, I'm, I'm not really a musician. It just sounds super, super cool to me and... One of the things I've 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 learned on listening to the new reissue, if you really turn it up, there's some interesting guitar stuff going on in the background during the verses. It seems like all three guitar players are playing a little bit of a different, not really lead, but melody almost. And you can really hear it. I haven't listened with headphones, but you can really hear it on the reissue. But I, I think it was a just a home run, uh, as you're going to hear Hagar say uh, when we review too. It's when it was the mic drop. 
Like that's <laughs> that's when they should have just walked off stage because you're just not gonna you're not gonna beat that. Ian, what are your thoughts? Oh yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, when you see them play it on um, on that Conan O'Brien performance, the camera is on it. Well, you know, Conan O'Brien's a massive music fan. He is a musician yes. himself. I'm sure he was like, look, Jimmy Page is going to be on the show, so if he wants to get up there and you know and paint like Bob Ross, well, that's what we're going to let him do. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's Jimmy luckily, Page. Luckily for the Crows, I think David Letterman, Jay Leno, and Conan O'Brien are all huge rock fans, and they're also all big Black Crows fans, and they kind of let the Crows do whatever they wanted on those shows. Well, you know, they, Letterman handpicked them to play that anniversary show when they played Feeling All Right. Yeah. Um, right. And they were on Letterman... Sometimes, sometimes it seemed like twice a, a touring mm-hmm. cycle. Um, right. I didn't realize how many times they had been on Letterman, and that to me that shows that he really was a fan of them, and that's great. I think the first time they were on Letterman, it was basically Rich and Chris playing with uh, Paul Schaefer's band. Yeah, it was right hard when, to handle, uh, I believe. Yeah, right when Moneymaker came out, and of course they did mm-hmm. uh, they did soul singing on there. They did what did they play off a Morka when that was tour was going? See, I thought that's when they played Feeling All Right. That may have been, yeah. Yeah, you know, they were on Letterman a lot more than they were anything. They were on The Tonight Show. That's when you knew this band was just special. I mean, just kicking on, just hitting on all cylinders. But, uh, yeah, Your Time is Going to Come is a great way to close out set one slash disc one. I'll be honest, this is my favorite of the two discs. I would agree. Yeah, I would have to say that, uh, you know, side by side, I would have to, you know, if I was only... What is it that old? You know, if you only had a one on a desert mm-hmm. island for the rest of your life, I would choose the first one. Yeah. So, Brett, you agree this is the better disc? I do. Um, the Crows did not play it safe on this album. Um, they could have they they could have taken the easy way out on this and replaced Custard Pie with Black Dog, or you know, just they could have made it a lot more. I guess um, um, palatable to the average music fan. I think so. And when you when you hear the Black Crows are playing Led Zeppelin and you're you're hearing songs like Sick Again and Custard Pie and uh, some of the covers, there was really some thought that went into how they were going to present this. But Brett, let me ask you because uh, David and I were batting this around. What's what Zeppelin song didn't they play that you most wanted to hear them them do? I wished they would have closed this uh, disc out, this this CD, or even their live shows when they presented the live show. Uh, I could hear them closing with rock and roll. That is a that 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 song. The Black Crows have played probably ten to fifteen songs that 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 sound like don't sound like rock and roll, but kind of played like that, right? Just basic rock and roll music. And the Crows, I thought I would love to hear them sing the song "Rock and Roll." especially Chris. Yeah, I could, I could definitely get behind that because especially uh, at that particular period of time, like, you know, 98 through 2000 or 2001, that's when they were pushing that the most rock and roll, rock and roll band in the world thing. So you'd think they would have jumped on that to kind of push that forward a little bit more. Would it definitely would have been interesting. I agree with that. All right, Brett, put you on the spot again. What's one crow song you wish they would have played that they didn't. I could see them playing twice as hard with Jimmy Page. And letting him do the slide? Probably. Um, I could just see that that, that would just that song would work with all the rest of the songs that they were playing at that time to me. That's a nice that's a nice pick. I wonder I often wonder how much you know how how willing Jimmy Page was to, to play their songs. I know they did and but I don't know how like, you know, if he limited them to all right, we're gonna do two, three of your songs and that's it or 
You know. I think that the the running joke was that he didn't know any of their songs and he was he was up there strumming on stage. That's what I've always heard from <laughs> from from folks that saw it live that he he really didn't know he he really didn't take the time to learn the Crow songs. I think he was just kind of in the background, kind of like an all star jam type deal. Right. Yeah, I could see him um, doing that. But yeah, that would that would have been fun. Let's say, hey, Jimmy, got to learn the slide on this one and really put him up in the mix i think it would have been and i think it would have made the song even heavier because you would have had rich and audley playing the the main riff so brett gotta ask you uh are you going to the reunion tour i am going to the reunion tour um i'm gonna have a i'm gonna have like a black crows vacation next summer i'm gonna go to uh the homecoming show in atlanta i'm sitting on the 22nd row um pretty close to the stage uh, that's that's the first week of July, and then the second week of July they play two shows in Nashville, and I'm going to those as well. So I'm just going to take a week and just get back into the Crows. Um, I'm going to follow them around and uh, meet up with lots of good buddies and just enjoy the week. Um, not going to worry about who's playing on stage. Just going to enjoy the music. Yeah, I think I'm going to try to make the Birmingham show and the Atlanta show. I actually canceled my tickets to the one in Arkansas. But, uh, yeah, I think I'm going to wait closer. I had the meet and greet. I'm sure all the meet and greets are, are going for that. So I wouldn't be so sure about that, David, because I went on because I kept my I retained my Jones Beach tickets because they were the same date exactly one year later, pretty much. Mm-hmm. I look I just looked into it out of curiosity the other day. And actually, I guess a lot of people, you know, got the refund on their tickets. So some more tickets opened up and these meet and greets that were, you know, X amount of dollars the first time around are significantly less now. But so, like, are you going to meet them with a face mask and like have a, a face mask <laughs> pick, or or like they're going to be behind like some like plexiglass and you stand in front of it, you know? And well, we can get those face masks. There was a there was a a girl on one of the uh, Facebook groups, I think, or something that she had an, an Amorica cover face mask, you know? Really? Like the yeah, I had to dig dig out that photo and put it on our page. I thought that was great. I don't know if she had it made herself or or what, but I mean, how how's Kate gonna attack Chris if she can't uh, actually meet him and he's behind plexiglass? Oh, please, she'll yank that mask off and plant and, one on him. And then we're gonna have to. <laughs> and I mean, and then we can't we can't slide him our our business cards. That's true. We can. We'll just laminate them. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, Brett. You passed with flying colors, I would have to say, wouldn't you, Ian? Oh, yeah. Absolute pleasure having you on anytime. I appreciate you guys having me. I enjoyed it. Welcome back anytime, sir. We will definitely have you back on in the future. Actually, because of the way we've structured this, you kind of got cheated a little bit out of the playout song. So if you were to pick one, what song would it be? I was thinking about this earlier. I would say find something from 2005. Mm -hmm. Um, How about Don't Do It? That was a great opener in 2005. All right. <laughs> All right, Brett, we appreciate it. Sounds good. Take care.
right, everyone. So jumping into the second part of this uh, epic Live at the Greek album, David and I are very, very pleased to be welcoming back someone that we've had on as a guest prior. He is uh, infamous in the Black Crows community, has been a uh, taper for many years and a an advocate of both the Black Crows and the Magpie Salute and, and really provided a lot of the fans with a lot of the music that they've been listening to in terms of live shows and, and things like that. We are very pleased to welcome back joining us for the critique of the second part of Live at the Greek, Mr. Steve Hager. Steve, how you doing, sir? Doing all right, doing all right. Well, Steve, down here it's hot as heck, but up there it sounds like you were telling me it's about 70 degrees. It sounds pretty comfortable. Yeah, 65, 70, last days of summer. Well, I mean, how long is the summer in Alaska? Is it like 16, 17 minutes, or, or what is no, it? No, 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 no. <laughs> June, July, July, and August are fantastic, and May and September are totally fine. April, March are kind of hopeful, and then October through February kind of are not very nice. So Five what, months of winter. So what was the quarantine like up there? Because I, I assume you guys already quarantined anyway due to the how cold it is. And just geography. No, what... What happened? We had good numbers until uh, till they started bringing the cannery workers up for the offshore boats and stuff, and then Anchorage started, you know, quote unquote, exploding. But we we've had a pretty good handle on it. It's less than a one percent infection rate, and you know, I I I I will admit I've used more wipes in the last three months than I did in the previous ten years. But you know, <laughs> I. You, you can do little things to mitigate risks, like go to the store at nine o'clock at night, grab the potato chip bags from the back of the shelf. You know, you don't you don't go at five five thirty when everybody's getting off work and stuff like that. Just little personal other things besides what they publicize. But I do understand down there much more serious issue than we've had up here. We're pretty isolated from the whole thing, especially you know Fairbanks. We did, we're three hundred miles from the ocean and. You know, we had some cases. I had a really good friend die from it, but you know, personal responsibility is so huge in this. That's just like I some people just dazzle me. It is what it is. You got to do what you can do and fortunately I haven't caught it. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy thing. It's kind of just uh put the brakes on uh anything live performance related, which is uh, a bummer and uh, probably hurting hurting that industry pretty badly. Yeah, it's 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 going to be interesting how they get back on their feet, but I don't really ever see myself going to arena shows again or the big summer shed package tour stuff. I'll I'll keep it to theaters and under, you know, 3000 people's plenty. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I I was thinking about that myself the other day like uh at what point do you feel comfortable again, you know? It's it's a hard call. Yeah. Exactly. Like I said, I mean, I, I, I want to go, but I don't I don't see any more of the three week, 5000 miles, 17 hotel room and 21 days trips. I just don't. Hopefully next year's better. I don't see how it couldn't be. <laughs> right. I mean, there's nowhere to go but up, you know, but uh, yeah. I mean, I was even it was just the first of the three store day installment things. And I, I was even squirrely going out to that a little bit. But I mean, I did. But all to get myself a copy of Lions, Steve. So yeah, well, I um, yeah, they have they have twelve step programs for that, probably. Maybe <laughs> first step is admitting you have a problem. The other eleven are the solution. 
Well, no, I didn't think I was gonna. Uh, you were gonna say back to me. Yeah, I went out and got the uh, that album too. So uh, <laughs> yeah, and well luckily, well and luckily, played, my but... good friend Ian got in line at four thirty in the morning for me, and he got got me one as well. I'm just a, I'm an archivist, man. I've got to have everything. And that that oh. I, all I need now is chronology and freaking roll on vinyl. So, are you a vinyl guy? I had a little bit for a while, but. I just don't have the turntable for it. I mean, I still got, you know, a good, nice little collection of 20 or 30 nice albums that are all signed, some personalized and whatnot, more for display than mm-hmm. playing. But, uh, yeah, I, I basically, I'll buy an album at a show if I can get the band to sign it or something. And again, not for resale, just to sit on the shelf with the other ones kind of thing or whatnot. But, but it is cool. I mean, it's nice that there's at least a niche market for it. Well, I interviewed uh, David Ellison of Megadeth for my other podcast, and he was we were talking about he had bought he just recently purchased Combat Records, and we were just talking about you know the vinyl thing, and he said honestly I think a lot of people buy them just for something to get signed and framed. Oh, I just I have friends with twelve hundred dollar record needles, so I know that there are people that do listen to them, but you know it's all it's all priorities, I suppose. I just uh, they're bulky, they're easy to damage kind of like comic book collecting you know so <laughs> well this week we are here we've called you into uh we're going to discuss as we do do a little breakdown of the second part of the live at the greek release i was there both nights yes and uh i don't i don't think i've ever actually bumped into another uh fan that said that so that's that must have been a really uh a cool experience i mean uh, what are some of your Memories of that. I know we're going back 20 years here. Well, I remember after seeing the Crows twice in September of 98, I didn't go to the second two shows I had tickets for and pretty much swore them off. And then all of a sudden they decided to pick up Jim Page. And I was like, hmm, probably should go check that out. But I wasn't going to go to the East Coast. And then they announced the two shows at the Greek and it tied in into a crazy taping trip where I think the first night was Ben Harper, Tool, and Rage Against the Machine at Coachella, the very first Coachella ever, and Tom Petty and Lenny Kravitz and four Panic shows and four Mule shows in a perfect circle. But lo and behold, that trip was planned when the Greek shows were announced, and that I I probably, if I didn't mention the Graham ticket agent guy last time, he, uh, he was instrumental he ended up getting me 12th or 13th row dead center for both nights because he knew i was a taper he knew i didn't need the thousand dollar front row seats that he had i just needed something with a good mix so he knew what taper tickets meant and whatnot and i can't remember if it was both nights but i know for sure one the baseball pitcher randy johnson was ahead of me because you can't really miss a six foot eight dude with those ears right but (laughs) randy johnson from the diamondbacks and whatnot he he was at least at one of the shows and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but hearing the Roseland shows and then these ones a week later, they definitely got a lot better and tighter because those first couple nights at the Roseland are awfully sloppy on Jimmy's side. A lot of, a lot of miscues and mistakes, especially that first night, but it was nice to see that, you know, three nights at the Roseland, Mansfield, fly across the country or two shows at the Greek, and I thought they were really tight. I thought it sounded fantastic and... So I could have left the building after the song right before just two starts. Your time is going to come because it Ed just pretty much owned the entire stage and the tempo and the and the light show that went with it and everything. I'm pretty sure there's video of it out there. 
Jimmy Page is always known for being sloppy live. Yeah. Am, am, am I am I wrong on that? I, everything I, I've ever seen, he's he's just been been kind of very sloppy. I had the audience recordings for years, and then those soundboard ones, you know, leaked out, and you can really hear the mistakes. Like if you go back to that ten fourteen soundboard and listen to it, he's bad. <laughs> I mean, it's it's definitely that was it was smart that they waited until they had a half dozen shows under their belt or whatever before they decided to record them for this because, but there was just there was huge improvement between the first night of the Roseland and the third. I mean, you know, he probably was still figuring out this and that timing wise and whatnot. But you know, of course, Gorman held the held the backbone down for him. But I know another thing I really remember is very little oddly like they they had their requ- requisite three or four crow songs i want to say three crow songs in a cover each night that the crows were known for and those were the four songs you got to see oddly's fingers move and other than that the dude he was pretty much in the shadows and it was all about jimmy which is probably as it should have been they they brought it chris had the attitude for sure and uh just that nice outdoor open air sound do you think that jimmy benefited from having two other guitar players there to kind of fill in the holes for him you know what i mean from what i remember in zeppelin discussion boards he was really notorious for layering in the studio and obviously when you're layering sometimes there's multiple guitar parts and yeah i would i would have to think that helped i just don't really remember noticing oddly that much on any of the zeppelin songs he might have done a flourish here or there or whatever but it was pretty much jimmy front and center with rich backing him up and I could be wrong. I mean, I didn't. I haven't gone back and watched the videos to see if he fills in, but I just don't really remember. Ed Ed was pretty dominant. Jimmy was pretty dominant. Steve held down the backbone for sure. Uh, have you read? You've read Steve Gorman's book, right? I have not. I, I'm going to tell well, him. That you didn't read I'm his book. very well aware of the. Uh, yeah, I I disagree with that vehemently on many levels. Um, the easiest way I can say it, I was on a lot of, you know, Zeppelin message and discussion boards as a lurker or whatnot, and there was just always this huge rumor that Jimmy has this can of riffs in the can, and he's just trying to, you know, find the right band to go out there and put that rock album that's going to rule them again. And, well, there was The Firm, and there was his solo album. That didn't do it. Then there was Coverdale Page. That didn't do it. And then what did he do after Crow's Page? I mean, it's it's like, you know, 30 years since the breakup of Zepp. And, he, you know, Shake My Tree off Coverdale Page was a pretty... But I just don't... I don't think that that offer was ever presented. I don't I don't buy into that for one second. It just... it's the The mythology was already in place. I think that's been one of the biggest myths is that Jimmy has this huge can of riffs in the can huge bag of riffs in the can and then he goes and releases the ninth remaster of zeppelin 4 instead like i've just i don't see the results behind the rumors they are the most remastered and reissued catalog i think is led zeppelin i, I mean Never pink floyd so many Yes. Never <laughs> Pink Floyd. And, uh, I mean, Dark Side of the Moon versus Led Zeppelin 4, man, that, I'd have to look it up on the internet because I don't know, but I lost count. That is true. You're, you're definitely right on the Pink Floyd front. But uh, as far as this album goes, does what's on the tape hold up to like to match what's in your memory of it? Is it still, oh, yeah. you listen yeah, to yeah, it, it's yeah. all the same feeling? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, uh, it's, the, the, the spark was there. 
I mean, I, I thought they totally did the Zeppelin catalog justice. It wasn't like I walked out of there going, oh, that was a horrible show. Or, I mean, they, they you know, 10 scale, eight and a half. Was it perfect? No. Did Chris crack here and there? Yeah. But so did Robert. You know, my favorite Zepp is the 68 to 72, the raw, the visceral, the 32-minute versions, a whole lot of love with nine songs crammed into it. You know, they got rather bloated and and... I don't know what what the other word, adjective I would use, but 73 was kind of the turning point. Jimmy was really bad on the heroin. That's why I heard a lot of those 73 boards were released as he was trading them to his heroin dealer. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But uh, there's a rumor that if, if he didn't trade him to his heroin dealer, the heroin dealer stole him and got him to the bootleg community. But it definitely had something to do with his drooling problem. Well, to me, one of, one of the great things about these shows, it's the... It's the selection of songs from Zeppelin they did. It's songs that Zeppelin, some of them Zeppelin never even played live. And well, yeah, that was, that was, I mean, I do remember the first page plant tour when they went to Japan, they broke out T for One for the first time, like ever, with Robert singing it or whatnot. But yeah, you could kind of tell Jimmy wanted to play a lot of songs that Robert probably refused to sing. Probably because Robert maybe couldn't sing them anymore. I mean, I don't know for sure. Well, I mean, since we're talking Zeppelin quickly here, and I noticed that the uh, the set lists mostly, and especially on, on this particular release, very light on the in through the outdoor material as, as a guy who seems to appreciate Zeppelin. What's your what's your take on that album? Yeah, they they were definitely... Well, but that that's probably, other than parts of three, the most laid-back Zeppelin album. So maybe they were going for the rock. I mean, they, you know, you could kind of tell from the first few songs they played that they were setting the tone. That I mean, of course, Zeppelin's known for sprawling, moody, you know, the no quarter type stuff, and you kind of anticipated those songs were going to come later in the set. But you know, even you know, I think I don't think they did. They do. She talks to angels over the two nights because I know they changed the crows songs up, whereas the Zeppelin songs pretty much stayed. I think the same. it was normally wiser, remedy, no speak, and hard to handle. All four of those songs were different the first night, if, if I remember correctly. They might have doubled up on Remedy, but the other three... seems like Oh Well was one night, and Shapes of Things was the other night, maybe, for the cover. And Wiser Remedy... I didn't pull out my first night set list or pull it up to compare, but there was definitely... The Crows songs were a little bit different between the two nights, but the... The order of the Zeppelin songs and where they appeared in the set. I mean, they just basically unplugged this Crows song, plugged in a different one kind of thing. But yeah, hard to handle Remedy, Wiser Time. I don't think they did Shapes of Things both nights. But it seemed there was there was at least one or two more. I've also heard a lot of people say, and I kind of agree with this, that the Black Crows doing this and Chris singing these songs for this tour kind of hurt his voice for a, a Quite a considerable time after that. Would you would you say that's a fair assessment? I always thought his voice after this tour on Black Crow stuff and and things like that was a lot more strained than it had been. Part of it, yeah, but I mean, part of it too was seeing those shows in '98 leading up to that, and he was pretty tripped out. I mean, he was wearing the Zoot Suit Riot suits, and I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the Chris Robinson I remembered from 12 months earlier by any means. It wasn't the uh, Lakers jersey with the shorts. No. No, there wasn't there wasn't any of that. It was completely different image. Like I walked out of that show in Des Moines in '98, just going, "What did I just see?" I mean, it just was so far removed from 
you know, 12, 16 months earlier or whatever that I just, I swore off the crows. I said, I'm never going to do another crow show again. I had tickets for four nights. I only went to two and I was like, well, I saw it twice. I gave it two chances. I think I, I take it back. I did end up watching like most of their festival set at that radio festival in Chicago, but I had tickets to St. Louis that I ate and I heard it was like a hundred degrees in a shoebox with 400 people. So I didn't really regret that too much. I heard it was hotter than hell. That night, so. Yeah, I mean, it is it, it is the uh, probably the biggest 180 a band has ever taken in in the in their career. I would I will say that from '97 to '98, it was it was pretty dramatic. So we're gonna uh, run down this album the way we usually do this, Steve. Is we kind of just go track by track and uh, give our thoughts on it and and things like that. So uh, let's uh, let's dive right into the second disc of this, which opens up with the Lemon Song. <laughs> Well, they, yeah, the the whole, both nights, all the songs, I mean, they, they nailed it. I don't even think I thought about, of course, I was taping, but didn't even think about any kind of bathroom break or anything like that. But they, uh, they really, you know, they stretched out here and jammed there. I want to say this clock's in it close to, close to eight minutes, maybe. Yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's about a minute and a half longer than the Zeppelin version. So they did, they did stretch it out a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it just—it it was just pretty much, you know, one ten-ton heavy thing after another for the most part. There really—I don't really remember any lemons, haha, haha, <laughs> during the night. But uh, I don't know I always thought this was a great song. Led Zeppelin has this thing where they title their songs quite often nothing that matches anything in the lyrics of the song or anything like that. So sometimes I forget what the lemon song is until i hear it but it's a i thought it was a it's a great song i thought if you were going to listen to it straight through and not separate it by disc i thought it was a nice follow-up to right after your time is going to come i never have been that big of a fan of it like the zeppelin version to me this version was just fine but like you said it's coming right after you know uh 10 years gone and your time is going to come it's kind of a letdown to be honest with you Having a couple mid-tempo songs, you know, they wanted to, I, I mean, I, I do believe Jimmy wanted these shows to be rock shows versus, you know, he'd just done a couple tours with with Robert that were much more mellower, you know, 15-minute right. versions of Cashmere and stuff like that. And I think, you know, he'd been working on Robert for a few years, hey, sing these songs, and Robert said no, so Jimmy's like, fine, I'll go find my own band. It was inspired by Howling Wolf's Killing Floor. But uh, on like Wikipedia, they still list Howlin' Wolf as a 
as a contributor to it. So it's like half half the Howlin' Wolf song, and then they change the other half or something like that. Like it's not a direct rip of note for note, beginning to end, but they definitely interpolated important parts of it when they when they built their own version. Well, didn't they have to go back and do that on on a few songs in their catalog? They had to like, uh, you know, share credit with some some of the old blues guys because they had lifted a significant enough amount to like to resemble the uh, someone else's original song. I, I seem to remember that. But so the next track up in the set list, always a a, a, a favorite of uh, Zeppelin's of mine, comes from a I think a very underappreciated album called Presence, which was. Second to last of their studio albums, if I'm not mistaken, 1976, and that's uh, nobody's fault but mine. I like their take on it. I think it's pretty, and this is the case with a lot of the the, the tracks on this this album and just in, in shows I've heard on tape and things. They're faithful to the original versions, but they're not just rogue covers of them. They're not just you know exactly the same. They're they're faithful enough to to give you that feeling, but they also kind of explore make the it their own. Bit, so, yeah, yeah. There there really wasn't. I mean, I don't remember any songs where I that were bum from either night really it was just probably half of it was the excitement of getting to see jimmy page rip on a bunch of zeppelin songs that he wouldn't play with his, you know his other buddy bob a few years back and of course zeppelin's catalog there's always going to be a half dozen why didn't they play this why didn't they play that but yeah they it yeah the sound mix on all this is it, it was it was all really good i was glad that they recorded it and released it for sure this is one of many songs that Steve Gorman just owns on this album. The drumming on this song is just great. I, I love it. I think it's I think it's a great version. It's big. The drums the drums sound so big on this album. Did you do you remember them sounding really big live? Yeah, the 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 acoustics at the Greek in LA are are really fantastic. I want to say it only holds like 6500 and the spacing's really nice. You know, you're not crammed into one of those little things where it's only 14 inches wide on on bleacher seats with your instead of having an actual seat, there's just lines painted and numbers painted on the on the bench or whatever. But it uh, the Greek is a really nice place. I saw a few shows there over the years. Kind of a P.I.T.A. to find parking 
I remember that we had to park about a half mile away if we wanted to park for free. Just from the way the I, I I'm not sure if Griffith Park is right near there. I might be confusing that with the Hollywood Bowl. L.A. is so big and spread out, and I never lived there, so it's we're going by twenty year old memories here. But, uh, <laughs> but it's uh, you know it's 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 a decent neighborhood or whatever. You didn't feel weird parking your car half mile from the venue or whatever. But it just Greek theater, you know, thirty forty bucks to park your car for two hours. Yeah, I'll I'll use the healthy choice and take a short stroll. <laughs> good good thing yeah. having friends who live there who know where those free parking spots are and you don't have to get lost trying to find them urban sprawl that's right but uh, so next up heartbreaker rock song first of all and a uh, showcase for steve gorman this was it right here as well kind of a one-two punch with nobody's fault but mine i always liked this song on the original release of this it should actually should mention this too because originally this came out through is it music it, music maker dot com yeah. and it was like you kind of you could either go and just get, buy the whole thing and they send it to you or you can like you know pick and choose your tracks and make a custom disc of it that was before it came out through tvt records and this was the first track if you just ordered it as they had it, this was the first track on it. I, I would say probably the, the biggest error they made was not following up Heartbreaker with uh, Live and Love and Made. Like if I, if I had a big major complaint about anything, how can you have one without the other? That's like playing Eruption and then not doing You Really Got Me afterwards. <laughs> it's just not, you can't do that. Right. But, you know. If that's a complaint, that would be why one complaint. Why, why, why couldn't you throw that little two minutes of living, love, and made there after after Heartbreaker? But uh, it's more of a radio thing versus live. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, that. It's just like you hear that one song, and then there's that empty space afterwards. And then you just expect it to kick in, and then if they cut to commercial or voiceover or something, you want to punch the announcer in the face because it's like, why did you do that? But, you know, I said that it's, it's, it's more radio. Like, I, I truthfully wasn't, like, ready to walk out because they didn't do Live and Love and Made, you know, because you're soaking up the thing. But it, uh, I said Eruption, you really got me. And I know there's a couple others out there that are like that where you just. Foreplay, been you, a long time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it just, the one goes good with the other. I haven't thought about those kind of songs in a while, but. Uh, What's that other one that Queen does? It was it uh, Bicycle Race and Fat Bottom Girls. They always used to play those two together too. Yeah, yeah. It's, 
It's just like, you know, and I mean, maybe that sprung from two for Tuesday. Who knows? I don't know. But equal. It's funny that you say that because equally as popular on FM radio as two for Tuesday was, uh, you know, get the lead out. So, you know, I think unfortunately Led Zeppelin through no fault of their own kind of ruined FM radio because, you know, I mean, at least here in the New York area in an hour, you could hear probably three Zeppelin tunes. I mean, that's a lot, you know? Yeah. Well, I grew, I grew up south of Memphis, and every Friday night, there was a radio station in Memphis did get the lead out. I thought they were the only people that did it. And I, I'd tell people, oh, you gotta you got to try to listen to this station out of Memphis, man. It's like 90 minutes of Led Zeppelin every Friday night. And then I go to my grandparents' house, and they live like 300 miles away, and it was like, all right, we're going to get the lead out. And I'm like, well, wait a second. what's the, What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there was. Yeah, we had one up here in Fairbanks on the, the, the KSUA I mentioned earlier. They they did do a get the let out for Zeppelin too. So it was it was nationwide. It was bad. It was nationwide before the internet. See the the, the also the unfortunate thing about no living love and made is when they re released that last round of uh, Zeppelin reissues, a lot of the bonus tracks were like versions of the songs with no vocals on them, and I never heard. Live and love and made without the vocal over the top, and that actually is such a killer riff. I thought it would have been like a guitar player's dream to play that. Like they probably could have had a lot of fun with that, actually. Oh, exactly. Rich's Rich's razor fingers. Oh, uh, next up in the track order is uh, probably one of my favorite Led Zeppelin songs, and uh, for the longest time, it was it was a it was a B side to a um, I don't remember what the uh, the A side to it was actually or maybe it was the A side I, I don't remember a hundred percent but it wasn't on an album so you know and and kids these days they uh, they won't know the uh, the trials and tribulation of having to do this but the only way to really hear it other than playing a forty five was you tried to quick tape it off the radio when they played it and that was hey hey what can I do. What's your take on their performance of this song, Steve? Well, I don't even think I was aware of that song, and wasn't that like the big lead-off single for the the box set that had the crop circles on the front? It was that. I'm bad. That and like traveling Riverside Blues. That was pretty much my initiation to that song, and yeah, they did. You know, definitely not my favorite Zeppelin song because you're going to be doing a rock show. What are you doing, wasting your time playing this one? But you know, get that out of the way. And yeah, it was it was pretty smooth. I don't I don't remember any bad things about it. Oh, I I love it. I mean, it's I think it's like if I was putting together a single disc from these two, I would have it on there. And I I I, I love the song. I love Mellow Led Zeppelin. And one of the things that sticks out so much, I'm not sure who was playing the mandolin on this, but they're wearing it out. <laughs> It's the mandolin is so high in the mix, which I think adds a lot to it. 
and the Crows would go on to play this. I know they played it a couple of times on like Halloween shows and things like that. They would they would bust it out every now and then after this after this tour. I mean, I always I always thought it was a good tune. It is kind of a if you're doing a rock show kind of setup, it does bring things down a bit. But it also I think it kind of allowed you to go from that that rock and they kind of flip it into uh, you know a couple of. Uh, old blues covers kind of a little run here on this which i thought was kind of cool and that so that brings you right into a song that the crows did you know as a as a b-side and did it countless times live without jimmy but i thought this version's pretty good that's uh, mellow down easy say they did that with jimmy in 95 in paris february 95 paris so it wasn't a big shocker that they i guess point being that they decided to add that one in because they already had a familiarity with it from years prior it's weird to hear this song and not have share the ride with it but uh yeah it's one of my favorite of all the like blues covers they do it's one of my favorite ones of theirs and i mean you just add another layer of guitars with jimmy page on this one i think it's fine I mean, you want to talk blues covers, though. I think one of the best covers the band ever did is the next track. And uh, I think this is probably doing it with, with Paige really put it to another level. And that's uh, Fleetwood Mac's Oh Well.
Are you a fan of this one, Steve? You must have heard this a million yeah, times that was, on the road. That was definitely a pleasant surprise. Peter Green riff, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, I want to say this was real popular during the encores of the 99 By Your Side shows. But yeah, it's 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 a good one. I mean, they you know they they definitely were very tasteful in their choice of covers for what they. I've been comparing the first two night set list. All right, so have we determined that this album is from one single night or because I'm looking right now at the set list for the second night, and I know that they did play Sloppy Drunk, and I'm not seeing Sloppy Drunk on the set list of the album. So I'm pretty sure when they made this album. Because I see No Speak, Wiser, Remedy, Shake Your Money Maker, and Shapes of Things the first night. And it looks like they dropped Wiser from the first night and did Hard to Handle. And they did Sloppy Drunk the second night, which isn't on this set. And it seems like there's one other little anomaly, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm trying to f- remember what it was. I thought they advertised this as from being from the second night. But I also thought when they released it that... Jimmy wasn't happy with one or two of the songs from the second night, couldn't overdub them right, so then they ended up swapping in songs from the first night. But don't quote me on that, because that's 20 years ago fuzzy memories. <laughs> well, actually, that was that that was a question I was going to ask you. I mean, do you, does it seem like there was a lot of uh, post-recording go and uh, fix it up you know like uh frampton comes alive or kiss alive or something yeah like that, you know? i'm not one of those people that sits there and dissect stuff like maybe a tool fan would meaning the band tool <laughs> but like those people that just listen for all those little intricate or you know i know i know ozzy was famous for editing out those the original rhythm section on those first couple albums and had i think it was robert trujillo and and mike puffy borden from faith no more re-recorded the drum and bass tracks from was it bob daisley and Kerslake, Lee Kerslake. Yeah. I, you know, that, that was one of the most famous where he actually re recorded it on the studio stuff, started selling them, and the Aussie fan base freaked out on that one. But, uh, point being, the overdub- overdubbing on this, I don't think was anywhere near as dramatic. But Jimmy being a sloppy player, I'm sure if you took the audience tapes or the raw soundboards and compared them side by side to the finished release product here, that you would probably find slight variances because Jimmy's pretty notorious for the layering and the overdubbing. But I I don't know that for a fact or anything. Like I said, I didn't sit down and, and side by side them. But that's why I said I've just been, you know, woke up this morning too. They did that the second night. And I don't think that's on this set. It is possible it is just a straight recording of the first night, but the order's different. The last four songs for the show coming up shake your money maker you shook me out on the tiles whole lot of love the actual played encore was hey hey what can i do oh well out on the tiles and a whole lot of love shake your money maker was played before shapes of things like before nobody's fall but mine before heartbreakers so they definitely did do some post-song rearranging the set list for the release live at the greek album is not exactly what they played that night they used the two nights to put this together well you just mentioned that uh Next up was uh, Shake Your Money Maker.
one of those tracks that I don't mind hearing, but uh, I'm not dying to hear it. You know what I mean? In this in this setting, Jimmy Page, of course, adds quite a bit to it. I think. I don't know. What do you think, David? It's a good song. It's not one that I'm like going to get excited about if they play. But it was a perfect song for them to play with Jimmy Page, and I think they play it really well. It's over in less than three minutes. Yeah. <laughs> Even if you don't like it, there's something else coming up real soon, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not even enough time to run to the bathroom. No, it's it's a solid. It's it's one of those kind of like thick and thin, strutting blues. That little three minute get the riff out rocker that you know you could you could take it, you could leave it. It 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 fit. I I want to say that's the other song they played besides the uh, one I just mentioned with Jimmy and Paris. I want to say it was this one and the other one. It seemed like it was Oh Well and Shake Your Money Maker. No, Oh Well they were doing they were doing in '99. It was Shake Your Money Maker and. One other one in Paris. So the next up is uh, a song where uh, you actually had mentioned uh, a little bit back, and that's uh, You Shook Me. I think this is a great Zeppelin tune, and I think Chris vocally hits his stride big time on this uh, particular song. I don't know what what do you what do you guys think? It's it's definitely an epic type song, you know, one of those like in the light and cashmere for sure, but with a little bit more of a early visceral edge to it because they weren't quite as pompous and bloated in the late sixties as they were in the early seventies or mid seventies. See, I, I have just kind of the opposite reaction. Like, I'm more fond of, like, 72 on. I mean, I like I like Led Zeppelin 2 and I like Led Zeppelin 3 a lot. But once you get to 4 and on those next 3 or 4 albums, kind of my sweet spot. Uh, I never actually, I'm, boy, people are going to want to kill me. I never really enjoyed a lot of the really long, drawn-out blues-type songs from the early years. I'll have to get you the right bootlegs, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> like, dazed and confused. Like, to me, it just it, just, it was too long. I enjoy more of the traditional Zeppelin songs on this album than I do. the. Well, it is a Willie Dixon cover. Yeah, Willie Dixon and I think Muddy Waters did it too. And probably 10 others that we're not even aware of. Right. Yes, of course. You know, you want to talk bombastic 
Led Zeppelin riffs. This the penultimate track here uh, is a riff I always loved by them. I loved it when I when this album first came out in that Music Maker version, and that's uh, out on the tile. <laughs> I think it really works. The the way that Page and Rich Robinson kind of play this riff in unison, and they're good at doing that on a lot of other songs too, like Custard Pie and uh, you know things like that. Uh, I just think it's great. I, this is one of the the definite highlights of this album for me. I don't know. What do you think, Steve? I want to say it is like another song that I mentioned from this before. Uh, T for one when Page and Plant did that in. Tokyo, somewhere in Japan, they did that in 96. And that was the first time that T for One was ever brought to the stage. If I'm not mistaken, Zeppelin played out on the tiles live once. And there's a really rough recording of like half the song. And that was it. There's no other recordings that exist. Now, of course, they could have played it a handful of more times, probably right when they were, you know, debuting that album live or whatnot. But they're. Very, very, very rare song, and I would imagine the Zeppelin community was pretty stoked to see Jimmy riffing on that one again. For me, this "Hey, Hey, What Can I Do" and "Oh Well" are the highlights of the of the second of the second disc. Yeah, this is one of the ones when I saw it on the set list. When I saw it on the thing, I remember, oh, Zeppelin probably never played this. This is gonna be great to hear this one played live and played with you know three guitar players. Yeah, well, two. Because I don't really remember. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly doing too much. He he did some flourishes here and there. But it was definitely spotlight on Jimmy kind of thing. These were, which is probably as it should be. I mean, you know, wasn't there a little tiff over who got mentioned first, Planter Page? When the, I always called it the Page Plant Tour, but I'm pretty sure it was advertised as the Plant Page Tour. No. I mean it's 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 nice in a way in a way if you think about it because they really could have said well we're going out with Jimmy Page oddly we'll we'll catch up with you next tour, but you know how could you do that to somebody it's probably a big moment as a musician to go out on the road with Jimmy Page so they he was there you know <laughs> you know well and they they were basing the whole you know summer tour around it in 2000 based on the exploratory New York shows at the Roseland the Worcester show and these two shows. And I want to say there was a pre-pre-show somewhere in Europe where the Crows stumbled out, and there's like a 25, 30-minute set with Jimmy, just like three or four of the songs from this. I can't remember. It was. I want to say it was in a bar versus a studio. There might even be a studio session 
floating around from when the crows were over there. Oh, wow, that went so well on the bar. Let's go record a couple songs. But I could be totally confusing that with another another time they were over there. But I just I want to say there was something earlier in 99 in like a bar in somewhere in the UK where the crows came out and they did like You Shook Me and two or three other songs with Jimmy, 20, 30 minutes. And it wasn't all, it wasn't the entire Black Crows band either, but it was Chris and Rich and a couple others. I'd have to go look it up on Crows Base. Yeah, I mean, I always thought, I mean, I think this is worth mentioning. I always thought that that Chris really had a lot of balls, like coming out and singing these songs. And, and because the Led Zeppelin fan, I mean, if you think the Black Crows fan base is like unforgiving on stuff, the Led Zeppelin fan base is extremely unforgiving. To me too, a, a lot of complaints I got about Robert Plant live is that he doesn't, he, in some cases, very much drastically alters his vocal approach on some of these songs because, you know, what he does in the studio, I, I often thought was sometimes hard to achieve live. And so he changes the arrangements a little bit. So it was nice to hear these songs like done as you remember them, you know. And I, I think that I think Chris needs a lot of credit for that. Well, the best. The best thing to do with a cover song is to, you know, keep it faithful, but also make it your own. And he pretty much did both of those requirements with pretty much every song played. Like I said, I didn't go through and I don't have that dissecting ear, but <laughs> sounds pretty good on the radio. It does. And uh, to that end, you know, the, the set closes out with uh, probably one of the most well-known Zeppelin tunes, tunes at least in terms of... Uh, FM radio and things, and just you know, even casual fans know this one, and that's a whole lot of love. Chris and the whole band really knocked this one out of the park. It's really a good closer, in my opinion. Really leaves you leaves you on a high note on this one. I don't know what do you what do you think of this one, Steve? Lots of tempo changes, but you know, all all in the right place at the right time. They, uh, you could kind of tell the crowd was probably itching for it. You know, like, uh, but it was it was you know like one hit after another. But they did a good job of mixing the deep cuts in too. You know, it wasn't just a straight greatest hit cd fest by any means no and you knew they, they were going to have to work at least one of the hits in 
And I mean, this is this is a great one to close with for sure. I'd rather it be this than cashmere. Oh, yeah, see, see, I'm not a fan <laughs> of cashmere either. Though, did you ever end up putting out those um, those soundboards of the, uh, the 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 Page Crows soundboards that you had? Oh did yeah. You, did you end up releasing those to the? Because I remember those were, it sent them my way beforehand, and I don't remember if you ever actually put them out. Those were before uh, before the all the good studio tracks came out. All the the iPod tapes, I guess, is what I called that one. But uh, yeah, those those crows page were shoot three or four months before that. I'm pretty sure all the links were on America too, and Dennis read. I mean, with Dennis redoing them with the notes, and but we couldn't do it on Dime or Trader's Den because they don't allow crows soundboards. Uh-huh. Dennis may have put them on E Tree. That would have been where it went and ended like you couldn't really do them on dime would have banned me in a heartbeat if i would have put up a jimmy page black crows soundboard when they have on their not allowed bands thing no black crow soundboards and so i just don't take chances but i think e-tree you can look e-tree crows page and see what's there and if you see something from dennis that says soundboard from new york because it would have been that and the worster one too Dennis and I were cranking out so much stuff back then, it was pretty ridiculous, and I don't remember exactly all the fixes we did, but... No, I mean, they were great, and that was a, a definite gift to the uh, to the fans here. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the stuff you throw out there, just so you know, but I'm sure yeah, a lot of people do as well. You guys are all quite welcome. I don't know why, how I can live in Alaska and all this stuff just shows up. I mean, that, that last lossless... Brothers of a Feather, First Night in New York came out. I don't know if you got that. I do know I sent it to Dennis for him to track, and I don't think I ever got the Dennis version back. I think, as I mentioned either to David in the pre-call, but summertime, I back away from the playing with the live shows and stuff for the most part because it's Alaskan summer, and then wintertime rolls around, and plenty of time to play with that stuff. That's right, man. I totally get it. All right, so that was this two of the mighty Live at the Greek, and... Uh... What a fantastic album it was as a whole. But uh, we do appreciate you uh, dropping by with us again. Steve, you're always a welcome guest here. We always uh, appreciate your insight and and value your stories. Never a disappointment. As far as uh, playout songs, uh, David, uh, you had spoken with Steve a little bit earlier, and and you guys had discussed this, so I'm a little in the dark as to what what we're choosing for this one. I just remember the very tale, because after I went to these shows, we... (laughs) trying to remember what i did on like the 20th 20th but we ended up going all the way up to eureka for an acoustic mule show and then the next night i want to say the 23rd of october the crows played maritime hall i'm going from memory here mule was at the fillmore it's like 1 1 30 in the morning and the maritime hall crows show is the final show of the 99 tour or whatever they did a couple just black crow shows maybe it was either reno and frisco or vegas and frisco i can't remember 22nd 23rd but a very um, intoxicated Chris Robinson stumbled out on stage with Mule in a three-piece canary yellow suit, and they ripped through a pretty savage version of The Hunter with Mule. Chris was tore up, Mule plowed through it, and it was a pretty damn good... I want to say maybe oddly. I don't think Rich came out, but like Crow's show was over at 11 o'clock, Mule was still jamming at 1.30, Chris probably left Maritime Hall, hung out backstage, got all tore up, and then came out and just did... They, they ripped through the Hunter, and it was pretty badass, from what I remember. It was just two or three days after these shows concluded, and it's a song that wasn't on either of the two Page Crow shows. Granted, it doesn't have Jimmy Page, but it does have Chris Robinson. Hey, man, that's a great song, and uh, you know it's always uh, 
the the guest is always right. So uh, yeah, we'll definitely dig that up and find that. And uh, David, this has been a uh, an enjoyment, wouldn't you say? Oh, it's always fun to have the man on here, the myth, the legend, <laughs> something like that. Let's uh, proceed now with uh, the version of the hunter that Steve was talking about. Stay tall, everybody.
Loving you too much Letting you know 